All right. Uh, good morning. It's good to see everyone. Uh, let's continue in our worship as we open up our Bibles to uh, the Gospel of Mark. We're going to continue our series. Uh, and after this week, we're going to enter into an Advent series. Uh, but I'm really excited for today's passage. So Mark chapter 12, verses 28 through 34. I'm going to be reading from the ESV. Uh, you guys can flip there on your apps. Um, but if you don't have your Bible or your apps, it should just shoot up on the screen for you guys to follow along. You know, it's uh, rare for a confrontation between Jesus and the religious leaders to actually end on a positive note. Uh, usually there is disagreement, uh, rebuke, uh, kind of hostility. Uh, but today's passage is, is quite interesting. Uh, Jesus has another confrontation with a religious leader, uh, but this time it's actually uh, a good kind of encounter uh, that this scribe has. And a scribe was an expert uh, interpreter of the law. So he knew his Bible. Uh, and, and, and they are in a conversation about uh, what is the greatest command in God's law. And so let's give our full attention as I read, the, read this passage for us. Once again, starting at verse 28. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. This is God's word. Amen. Now, this was a very common question asked in Jesus' day. Uh, students would ask their rabbi this very question, uh, what is the greatest command? Uh, kind of similar debates that we have in L.A., uh, right? who's the greatest Laker? Right? Is it Jerry West, Kareem, Magic, Shaq, Kobe, or will it be LeBron? Right? In and out or Shake Shack? Right? It's in and out all the way. Uh, UCLA or USC? Uh, yeah, you guys, I'll let you guys figure that one out after service. Um, yeah, what is the best that LA can offer is basically the question. Uh, and out of genuine curiosity and sincerity, describe hearing uh, Jesus actually debate the Sadducees in the uh, passage previous, he was impressed by the way that Jesus responded to them about uh, the resurrection. And so uh, he came to Jesus with this very question. Now, there are 613 commands in the Torah, right, the first five books of the Bible. 365 of them are prohibitions, right, thou shalt not, and 248 of them are positives, you shall. Those are a lot of rules, right, 613. And to summarize and to try to capture the most important ones was a very popular conversation for the religious of Jesus' day. However, uh, there's more to this question than simply organizing or prioritizing rules. Uh, see, the law teaches us something about God, his character, and his nature. Right? It's a reflection of who he is, what he is against, what he is for. So this question about the greatest law is a question about God's ultimate will and desire for his people. What does God desire from his people the most? 
And so this is the question of God's will. And this is a question that looms over our lives. Many of us, we're asking the question, especially for a Christian here today, what is God's will for my life? And I believe Jesus' answer, uh, answer to this question uh, will give us an inside look at God's ultimate will and desire for you and me today. And very uh, quickly to summarize his response, God's will is this, that you love God and you love your neighbor as yourself, right? Should we close in prayer, right? <laughs> Should we close in prayer? That's, that's basically it. That's the message. Right, it's not quite as simple as that because uh, many of us, we know this passage. We've heard it. We've memorized it, especially if you grew up in church. But I want us to kind of dig a little bit deeper into what this command is actually asking us for. And so three things for us today. The command to love. Secondly, the priority of love. And lastly, the challenge to love. The command, the priority, and the challenge. So first, the command. So let's take a closer look at the command. Jesus answered the scribe. The the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now Jesus here is quoting Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse Four, and for the Jews, this was known as the Shema. This was a prayer that was recited in the morning and the evening. But there, there, there is a very important statement that is being made here. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Um, the oneness is talking about the uniqueness of God, how he is set apart from all the other nations that worshiped a plethora of God, So all the surrounding nations of Israel worshipped idols, worshipped the idol of of childbirth, worshipped the idol of grain. They worshipped all sorts of gods. And so when here we hear the statement, the Lord our God, he is one, he's he's talking about the, the exclusive claim that he is the only true God. Now Deuteronomy was also written at the time when the Israelites were about to enter the promised land, and the promised land was, were full of tri- uh, the promised land was full of tribes who worshipped all sorts of idols. So this is a statement saying that God is the only God, but also implied in here is that you shall not worship any other God. You should not adopt these idols uh, that the Canaanites are worshipping. And so based on this truth that there is only one God, the following command is given. Verse 30, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. This is a pretty big command, right, that God gives to his people. Now, there are times that I want to command my wife and my children to love me, right, Uh, because I'm very sensitive and very needy. And so I want to tell them, hey, you must love me. I demand you to love me. And actually, my kids, for the most part, will entertain me. They'll try to do a little bit more, but Jane will have none of it, right? She will scoff at me. Um, but the thing that's very, very hurtful, actually, in, in our family, uh, in my experience, is when uh, my kids choose Jane over me, right? Uh, when they say things like, oh, I don't want you. I want amma, which is basically mom in Korean, and it's really hurtful uh, and painful for me to hear that. Uh, but that hurt quickly turns into anger, right? And I say things like, what? Do you know what I do for you? Right? Who's the one that plays with you? Who's the one that takes you to the park? 
right? Who's, who's the fun one, right? And so I just started, I started like doing all these things and I know that Jane's looking at me and I'm scared to look at her when I'm saying all these things. Um, and, and I know after Jane lets me finish kind of my rant and then Jane like looks at me and I already know what's coming, right? She has this phrase that just ends all conversation, right? Because I feel like I deserve more love, that I, 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 I'm, you know, my kids should love me more. And Jane just looks at me, he's like, who birthed them, right? And she does that little neck thing that you guys are probably familiar with. And that just ends the conversation. I'm defeated. I can't, I can't compete with babies coming out of me. I, I didn't do that. That was Jane, right? Um, at best, at best as a father, I can request more love from my children. I said, please, can you just love me more? Um, you know, for mothers, you know, uh, they can feel a little bit more entitled, right, for their children to, to love them. But for them to demand and command love, right, it's unwarranted, right? Anyone who, who, who would command or demand love, loyalty, devotion, and worship, we'll call them a dictator, right? A narcissist, someone who's crazy, but yet we see God commanding love, demanding it. See, God is the only one who can demand love, worship, and complete obedience, and it being completely warranted. Why? Because he is our creator God. He is the one that actually created us, and he's the one who gives us life. Like, no one else can say that about themselves, that I gave you, I Breathe into you life. No, God is the only author of creation. And so for him to request, not to request, but to command, love is warranted. And he can command love from his creatures. So then is God some kind of needy, insecure deity who needs our affections to affirm and validate his godness? Is that the God that we, we know and we worship? And we know that's not true. God doesn't need anything from us. He doesn't need us to affirm his, 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 his glory, right? Because we know that God, by definition, is a divine community. There's perfect love in the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So he's not lacking or in need of anything. He is self-sufficient, right? So the question is then, why does he command his people to love him? Why? Here's the answer. We were custom designed for relationship with God. Life, meaning, purpose, joy is found in this relationship. This command is not so much for God, but actually more for us. He does not need our affirmation. Rather, we need him and his love. See, life is found in God and him alone. Right? Like a fish that thrives in water. It's the most free in water. Humans, we were designed to thrive in a relationship with God. It's when you take a fish out of its natural, right, his home, right, you take it out of the water, it suffocates and dies. The same is true for us. When we are taken out of this life-giving relationship, we suffocate. There's dysfunction, disorder. Adam and Eve is a prime example of this. God created them, gave them everything. There was communion. There's relationship, intimacy. They decided they did not want to be in that environment anymore. They wanted to be their own God. And what happened after that? Outside the garden, dysfunction, disorder, 
suffocation, death, disease. So God commands us to love him for our sake, but with not just any kind of love, but with a complete, holistic, all-in type of love. Right? With all your heart. With all your heart. This is talking about your will and your desire. Do, do, do your decisions and what we pursue reflect a love of God? With all your soul, do you love God deeply with affection and passion and with your emotion? With all your mind, do we know God? Are we pursuing a deeper knowledge of God, the true knowledge of God? With all your strength, do we love him with everything that we have, everything that we possess, all our wealth, all our being? Are we loving him in this way? See, God commands a holistic, all-encompassing love. Because if you love God with just your heart, but not your soul, you can just begrudgingly submit to God's will. It's just a, du- it's just a duty, no delight. But if you love God with just your soul, but there is no mind, that love is just sentimental. And that love is unreliable because it's based on how I feel. If you love God with just your mind, but no soul, then there's no intimacy. It's just dry, cold knowledge of God. And with any of these elements missing, we can't say that we're loving God with all our strength, with our entire being. So based on this command, can you gauge the temperature of your love for God? Can you gauge, can you measure your love for God today? How do we measure that? How can we measure that? Jesus gives us a gauge. He gives another command to help us to measure our love for God or the lack thereof. Verse 31, the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. See, Israel, the Jewish people, affirmed the importance of both of these commands. But usually they're seen as distinct. They're kind of told separately. Here, Jesus does something very unique. He unites these two commands in one command, right? To summarize the will of God. Jesus is saying you can't love God without loving your neighbor, expression of your love for God can be best seen in how you love others. So here we have a gauge then. We can gauge the temperature of our love for God by seeing how we love our neighbors. Right? Neighbor in the Old Testament for the Jewish people was often defined as a fellow Jew. But Jesus broadened the scope of who our neighbor is right, in the parable of the Good Samaritan, Right? Jesus decides to use the enemy of a Jew, the mortal enemy of a Jew, a Samaritan. A Samaritan was half Jew, half Gentile, half non-Jew, a hapa, probably beautiful, right? But the Jews hated them. They would avoid going through Samaria. That's how much they hated them. But Jesus decides to use an enemy of the Jews to talk about what it means to be a neighbor and what it means to love a neighbor as yourself. And so these two commands capture the ultimate will of God. See, God can command this love because he is our creator. But the question is, how can we love God with such high expectations? How can we love him with our entire self? And equally as important, how can we love our neighbors, especially those that we would rather not love, the unlovable, how can we love them as ourselves? 
We'll get to that in a little bit. But the scribe responds positively to what Jesus says. And he actually recognizes the flaw of his own religious institution. And he understood God's heart better than his peers. And this brings us to the second idea, the priority of love. See, the the scribe affirms Jesus' answer, but then he also makes a value statement. Verse 32, And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself. So far, so good, right? He's affirming what Jesus, how he responded. Then he says something quite astonishing is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now, this is an astonishing statement. Because sacrifices were central to the worship of the Jewish people. It was central in temple worship. Now, there were all types of sacrifices, but the whole burnt offering was a special sacrifice. Right? That was for the, the, the forgiveness of our sins, to restore our relationship with God. And so, depending on your financial status... Right? You would bring either a goat, a bull, or a sheep. But if you're poor, you bring a pigeon, a bird. And, and as a person that's bringing this offering, what you will do is you will lay your hands on this animal to transfer your guilt and shame and your sins onto, the, onto this animal, and you'll kill it. And then the priest will take this animal and offer it whole, a whole burnt offering up to God. And that symbolized restoring relationship with God. It's much more than whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. This is, this is amazing, this statement and this value statement that the scribe is making. What is he saying here? See, for the Jewish people to obey the law, to offer these sacrifices, and to love their neighbor was to maintain a good standing in God's kingdom. The whole system that they developed, the religious system, they did all these things to maintain good membership in God's kingdom. So they didn't want to lose their membership of being God's covenant people, and so they created a list. And so they wanted to check off all those different requirements, and if they did, it ensured that they will remain in God's kingdom as his people. And that was the whole system. Now, you can see then how one can slip into religious motion, religious habits, simply going through the motions of religion, right, to maintain our good standing with God. It's easy to know then that your faith is going to grow stale. Your, your faith and your relationship with God is going to grow stagnant. If that's all that religion is for you, it's just maintenance, Right? Religious maintenance is what the Jewish people were doing. And, and, and if that's, the, again, if that's the case, maintain good standing with God, then religion becomes a means to our end, right? which is to secure and justify ourselves. See, God's not after superficial actions, but rather he's after our deep affections. Right? He's, not, he's not interested in religious maintenance on our end. He wants our full devotion. Please listen carefully. 
Many of us, we think we're living the Christian life. But in reality, you're living a religious life. Now, what's the difference? What's the difference between a Christian life and a religious life? In religion, you obey the law for love. In Christianity, you obey the law because of love. In religion, you have to go to church. You have to read the Bible. You have to offer your money, your time, and your services to God so that God will love you, that he will pour out your favor, his favor upon you, so that he will accept you, so that you can maintain a membership in his kingdom. In Christianity, because God first loved you, you get to worship. You get to know him. You get to offer yourself wholly to him. There's a difference, guys. So many of us, we're living the religious life and not the gospel life. See, 1 John 4.19, Apostle John says this, we love because he first loved us. We have to know the sequence of events accurately. See, God saved and redeemed, and then he gave his people the law. Where, did, where is Deuteronomy, right, in, in the Old Testament? Is it before Exodus or is it after Exodus? It's after. Exodus precedes Deuteronomy. So God heard the cries of his people and he redeemed and saved them, even though they weren't given the law, even though they weren't obeying the law. After redeeming and saving them, He says, hey, here's the law. Here's how you can enjoy me the best. Here's how you can enjoy life to the fullest. We got to know the sequence of events correctly. So the scribe understood this profound truth and applauded Jesus in articulating the heart of God. See, obedience to the law can't get God to love us. Right? If that's the case, is that really love? Or is that just a form of manipulation? See, love with something attached at the end can't help but be inherently self-focused, right? Something attached to our love, it's self-focused. Now, this truth is hard. Love is hard. Living the gospel life is so counterintuitive because we are immersed in a performance-based, merit-based system. Our entire worldview is based on this, that you got to work for love. Now, every year, Jane and I, we um, take the kids to see Santa. You can judge me all you want, um, but, you know, we don't want to rob them of their childhood. And, um, you know, every year, it's it's the same. The routine is the same. You know, they're excited. We go to the Americana. We make a reservation so we don't have to stand in line. And there's just general excitement on our kids' end. Uh, But this time, it was a little bit different. Uh, Deacon was not his, like, normal self. So as we were getting closer, right, our reservation time was coming, uh, the helper elf there, um, <laughs> uh, the, the ones that are, are helping us, asked Deacon, hey, what are you going to ask Santa for Christmas? And um, for the first time, he was speechless. And that's a miracle in itself. If you know my son, that's, that's a miracle. <laughs> he just didn't say anything. He was actually very sad. And, and, and somber. And um, he responded to the elf. Uh, he didn't say, you know, he didn't give a gift or anything, Legos, Star Wars, whatever. He's like, but I haven't been a good boy. 
it, it, it broke my heart to hear him say that. I wanted to, at that moment, rescue my son. I was like, Deacon, Santa's not real. <laughs> Jesus is better. But I, I desperately wanted to do that, but I know that was not the right way or the time and place. Maybe next year, like, I, I'm really thinking about not ever taking our kids to Santa again because Deacon has Santa right. His, his uh, clausology, right? The theology of Santa Claus, it was he has an accurate understanding of what Santa, how Santa operates. You got to be on the good list, not the naughty list. And Deacon being well, like very sensitive and self-aware, he knows that he fights with his sister. He knows that he lies to us. He, know, he knows that he disobeys. And he says, I'm on the bad list. And it broke my heart. Even the whole Christmas Santa Claus, the whole, the whole ordeal is a performance workspace system. And I'm really tempted of never taking my kids back to Santa again. Because we're already dealing with it. But then this, this holiday is reinforcing that truth. And my heart broke for my son. Now, I'm going to choose a, a better time to tell him that Santa's not real and Jesus is way better. And it's sad to say that there are some of us here that sees God that way. On a good day, God should bless me. If I have a bad day, God should punish me. This good day, bad day theology is, is not accurate theology, but yet so many of us, we live that way. God didn't wait for all of us to get on the good, with, good list. God didn't wait for us to obey the law. Paul says, while yet we were still sinners, Jesus died for us on that cross. This is the news, good news of Christmas. See, in God's economy, love has the highest priority. See, the law has a necessary place in our lives, but it needs to be exercised in the context of a loving relationship with God that is granted to us, is given to us freely by grace. And so we need to start with love. So this brings us to our last idea, the challenge to love. Verse 34, and when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. See, the scribes saw, that many, saw what many other religious leaders couldn't see, that God, isn't simply, that God isn't simply wanting our religious activity, but he wants our real affections. With this profound understanding of God's will, he is that much closer to God's kingdom. So the question remains, how can he go all the way? How can he get there? What is the application for us from this passage? Right? You may say, it's obvious, right? Obey the great command. Love God with all your being and love your neighbor as yourself. So now go and do it. Um, so, you know, it's easy for me to just say that, right? Go, and go ahead and try. What you'll find out quickly that it's impossible. This great command is impossible. You can't do it. This love is unnatural. It's, it's so unnatural to love God and to love others in this way. Right? Left to ourselves, this command is impossible to obey. Why is this? Because we are all learned lovers. Let me say that again. We are all learned lovers. We learn how to love, don't we? 
And how is it that we are loved? Based in this world and even sometimes based in our family. Isn't love incentivized? Right? You get good grades, your parents will love you more. You work harder, your boss will love you more. You do these things in the house, take care of the kids, and your wife will love you more. It can't be help, you can't help it. Because that's how that's natural for us to keep right a list. I did this, I should get this. Right? I, I, I took out the garbage this time, I, I changed the diaper this time. I, I'm you should love me more because of these things. It's it's natural for us to have incentivized love. And so we can't help but love others with, with an incentive as well. I better get something back for this. Or I hope this person acknowledges what I'm doing for them. And if they don't, then there's disappointment and frustration. Incentivize love. The greatest command is asking us to love God for God. Not for what he can give us. Not for his blessings. But simply for the fact that he is God. And the great command is asking us to love others with no strings attached. No strings attached. This is unnatural. So then how is it possible then for us to obey this command? Because obviously it's given to us because God wants us to obey. How then? Here's a challenge for us. We have to relearn how to love. We have to first receive the love of God. It's only by receiving God's love by faith that we can love others in this way. And love God in this way. This Greek word here that, that Jesus uses here in the Greek is agape love. Agape love is self-giving, sacrificial love. Not the sentimental, superficial love, but a deep, sacrificial love. And this, this type of love is not something we can produce ourselves. Rather, it's a byproduct of experiencing the agape love of God. And how did God demonstrate this? Jesus Christ went on that cross. The highest expression of love. We see it on the cross. Jesus laid down his life willingly for us so that we can experience the profound love of God. He sacrificed his very life so that we can get God's perfect love. We had nothing to offer We didn't even love him back. We didn't even start loving him back. But while yet we were living in rebellion, while yet we were with other lovers, Jesus Christ died for us on that cross. See, the ability to love God and to love others as ourselves starts not with us, but with first receiving Christ's perfect love. Because we didn't didn't do anything to earn it, right? And merit this type of love, we can't ever lose it. We we didn't earn this love, guys. So we can't ever lose it. You know what that does? It it removes all fear and anxiety. It's not about maintenance. It's about security. And so in in, in the same letter that Apostle John writes, he says, perfect love casts out what? Fear. How, How can we freely love others with no fear, anxiety, of worrying about getting loved back? It's by experiencing this type of love the perfect love of Christ. 
See, there are many of us here who are searching and longing for this love, a love that makes you feel secure, where there is no fear or anxiety. We all want that. And oftentimes we look for these in, in our relationships with our spouse, with our children, with our family or friends. But it never quite gets us there, does it? It, it never does. It never meets like, our expectations. It's disappointing. It's frustrating. There's a lot of pain and hurt because these are all imperfect lovers. And we too are imperfect lovers. There's only one that can love us perfectly, and that is Jesus Christ. If you're not a Christian here today, and you want to know what security, comfort, peace is, what that, what's that's like, consider Jesus Christ. Receive his love by faith. Acknowledge that you're not perfect, that you're a sinner, that you're deserving of wrath. But then look to the cross and see how God has loved you. For those of us who are confessing Christians, especially those who call ANCC home, if you're struggling to love others, don't look within. Make God your primary object of your affection. Don't, don't rely and depend on yourself. You, you'll, you'll fall short. Look to God. Love him for him. Read the Bible, not so that you can get some kind of tip. Read the Bible for him. To get, just get to know him a little bit better. Only this kind of love that we get from God can produce a selfless, sacrificial love for your neighbors. And I just want to make it very simple. Your neighbor is, look to your right and left, that is your neighbor. Obviously, we can broaden that scope, but we first need to be able to love one another. And so this week in community group, when you don't feel like going, because you think the sermon discussion is going to flop, don't think what you can get out of it. Go for others. Look, look to go, go to community groups so that you can give yourself to others. Maybe even offer to bring drinks, dessert. When you go home today, out of God's love for you, love your spouse with no strings attached. Don't keep a list of things that you did. Just do it because that's love. Your coworkers, your friends, love others without an incentive. And as we do, let's always keep our eyes fixated upon the cross. Let's pray. Father, I confess, Lord, that it's impossible to love you in this way, the way that you're asking us to. And it's that much more impossible to love others with no incentive. But yet, you command us to do this so that people will see your love the way that we love each other, the world will see who Jesus Christ is. And so, Lord, we need your help. God, I thank you so much that you loved us in, in, in a perfect way, that you gave all of yourself, all of yourself. Christ submitted his will and died on that cross. Father, may you help us to know your love better. Help us to experience it, not just to know it, but to experience it. So that by the love that you have given us, we can then love you and love others, ultimately for your glory. So God, we need your help. Once again, Holy Spirit, we ask 
that you fill our hearts now with a great and deep affection for Christ. Help him to see his beauty and his worth. Help us to see his perfect love. We give you all the glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray.